Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. Maitripa College is a Buddhist institution of higher education founded by Yangtze Rinpoche in 2005 in Portland, Oregon. We offer two graduate degree programs, a Master of Arts in Buddhist Studies and a Master of Divinity degree, and Classical Tibetan Language Studies year-round and through a summer intensive format. Founded upon three pillars of scholarship, meditation, and service, the Maitripa College curriculum combines Western academic contemplative learning and traditional Tibetan Buddhist disciplines. Through the development of wisdom and compassion, our graduates are empowered with a sense of responsibility to work joyfully for the well-being of others. They become agents of positive change in the world and are shaping the development of Buddhism in the West as scholar practitioners, chaplains, professional translators, doctoral degree candidates, leaders in the nonprofit world, educators, and more. We invite you to join us to make your practice your life. In this week's episode, Dean Namdral Miranda Adams interviews Dr. Roger Jackson and Yangtze Rinpoche about the traditional roots of Buddhist education in India and Tibet, and how it is developing in the modern Western world, and specifically at Maitripa College. Welcome to the Maitripa College podcast. My name is Namdral Miranda Adams. I am the Dean of Maitripa College. Today I will sit down with two very special guests. Dr. Roger Jackson, Professor Emeritus of Carleton College and visiting faculty member to Maitripa College, and Yangtze Rinpoche, Geshe Tharampa, President and Faculty of Maitripa College, to talk about Buddhist education. First, we will hear from Dr. Jackson, who, in addition to his professional credentials, is also a longtime friend to the Maitripa College community, about the traditional roots of Buddhist education in India and Tibet, and how it is developing in the modern Western world, and specifically at Maitripa College. So I'm very happy to welcome Dr. Roger Jackson to talk with us today about Buddhist education, and I'm going to refer to you throughout as Roger. Roger, welcome to the Maitripa College podcast, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Sure. Thank you very much, Namdral. I'm happy to be invited, and I'll do the best I can. So can we start by having you please tell me something about who you are and your connection to our subject matter, which is Buddhist education? Um, well, I'm a professor emeritus at Carleton College in Northfield, Minnesota, where I taught for around 30 years, uh, teaching primarily South Asian religions and Tibetan religions. And um, before that was um, uh, a student under Geshe Lundup Zopa at the University of Wisconsin, where I got my PhD in 1983. Um, I ended up at Wisconsin, uh, not entirely coincidentally, because Geshe Zopa was a teacher to uh, two lamas that I met in Nepal in 1974, uh, Lama Tutpin Yeshe and Lama Rinpoche, uh, associated with the Foundation for the Preservation of Mahayana Tradition. Uh, at the same time as I was uh, going through 
this educational program at the University of Wisconsin and then moving out into the academic world. I was, I was also involved particularly in the 70s and 80s with what now is, call, is called Deer Park Buddhist Center, uh, a center, center near Madison founded by Geshe Zopa. So I've been involved in um, educating people about Buddhism, Buddhist education in one form or another for uh, you know going on 50 years, I guess. Um, so that's roughly speaking my my connection to all of this, and I, I should mention that I'm I'm also a uh, on again off again visiting professor at Maitripa. Um, again, Maitripa has a connection uh, through Yangtze Rinpoche with Geshe Zopa. Uh, so uh, there's a as as I've said to people, there's a kind of an old school tie that I have with Maitripa. Beautiful. Thank you. Can you tell me something about Buddhist education as it was in India and Tibet and how it came to America? Uh, sure, this, this could be a, a dissertation in and of itself, but uh, uh, roughly speaking, uh, in, within, the, within the Indian Buddhist tradition, perhaps going back even to the BCE period, we don't really know for sure the dates of some of these places, there were... Um, sort of Mahaviharas, great great monastic institutions that housed many monks and sometimes nuns, but mostly monks, um, and also served as educational centers. So some of the more famous of these in India were Taxila, which is in what is now Pakistan. Uh, there are a couple of places, Somapura and Jagadala, which are now in Bangladesh, but the most important ones were in the sort of northern heartland of India. Uh, the, the most famous of these, in turn, was Nalanda, which goes back probably to the early centuries of the Common Era. The, the exact origins of it are unclear. And later on, uh, during the Gup sorry, during the Pala dynasty in the 8th, 9th centuries, two other very important monasteries were founded in this northern heartland in what's now Bihar, uh, Odantapuri and Vikramashila. And these, these again were uh, you know, sort of mega universities uh, within the Buddhist world. There would be monks coming from all over Asia to study there. Um, certainly some came from Tibet, but, but some came from as far away as, as China and Japan as well, uh, and Korea. Uh, so they were, they were uh, real, real centers for Buddhist education. And we, we know probably more about Nalanda than any of the others because it was the earliest and it was also until its decline late in the first millennium was also the greatest of the, these sort of monastic universities. And it was visited by a number of Chinese travelers, most famously Xuanzang, uh, who came in the seventh century. And he gave us a great deal of uh, detail about the curriculum there, the, the kinds of monks that were to be found there, the religious practices there. So we know, you know, for instance, that at, at Nalanda, um, Buddhist monks would study, you know, tenets and, and philosophical views from the 18 sort of early Buddhist schools, the so-called Hinayana, as he would have called it, um, as well as the Mahayana, but that they would also study the Vedas, which are, of course, sacred scriptures for Hindus. They would study logic. They would study grammar, medicine. 
And later on, and this was certainly true at Odantapuri and Vikramashila, Vajrayana or Tantra, uh, both in theory and practice, became a part of the curriculum as well. So it was a it was a broad education in many topics. Um, and these these monasteries, in turn, served as models when the Tibetans began to take on Buddhism uh, as early as the uh, 7th or 8th century. For instance, the first Tibetan monastery, Samye, which was founded by most people's accounts in 775, uh, is supposed to have been modeled both uh, architecturally and to some degree in terms of curriculum on Odantapuri, uh, this important monastery over the border in India. And particularly during what Tibetans call the later dissemination of Buddhism in Tibet, which begins roughly the year 1000, uh, with the rise of, of larger and larger monastic institutions, uh, places like Sakya and Jalu and Nartang and so forth, uh, these great universities founded in the 11th and 12th centuries, these, these became uh, centers that were based very explicitly on the Indian educational model. So they tried to take on as best they could the same curriculum, the same uh, courses of study, and, and so forth. Um, so it, it, it moved then in, into, into the Tibetan context. Of course, changes happened. You're always going to have that when you go from one culture to another. But, but the, the, there was at least an explicit attempt to model these Tibetan monasteries on those great monasteries of India, which by the time we get to the beginning of the 13th century um, are, are pretty much defunct because of a whole host of reasons, but Muslim invasions unfortunately had, had something to do with that. But in the meantime, uh, many of the texts, many of the practices, many of the ideas, many of the structures had been uh, transplanted into Tibet. And, you know, to bring it, uh, sort of push it forward within the Tibetan context, um, several centuries after these great monasteries like Nartang, Sakya, and Shalu had been founded, um, Tsongkhapa came onto the scene. And he, he founded the Geluk tradition, which is the tradition of Geshe Zopa, the tradition of Yangtze Rinpoche, the tradition I've been associated with most over the years and studied uh, the texts of the most. And Tsongkhapa, who lived from 1357 to 1419, was the founder of the Geluk. And in, in his, and he, he wrote voluminously on many different Indian texts um, and, and also taught orally on them and many of many of those teachings that he didn't write down himself were written down by disciples. So he he gave a, a fairly thorough survey of Indian Buddhist theory and practice, uh, not only in the sort of sutra tradition, but also in the Tantras. And in the generations after Tsongkhapa, um, Yeluk monasteries, and there were traditionally three great Yeluk monasteries near Lhasa, Ganden, which was founded in 1409, sorry, um, and Drepung, 1416, Sarah, 1419, uh, then Tashi Lunpo, a little further to the west in 1447. These great monasteries and others that sprang up eventually in other parts of Tibet uh, became the Geluk versions of these Tibetan versions of these great Indian monastic universities. And so, you know, when we, when we come down 
to uh, the modern era and particularly to the post-1959 era when uh, Tibetan culture uh, goes, at least a, por a portion of Tibetan culture, including very importantly the Dalai Lama, goes into exile, um, some of the practices, ideas, and institutions that had been uh, set in Tibet for the previous thousand years uh, were, were reestablished in India, and then in other ways they came eventually to be reestablished in the West, or to be established in the West in, in slightly differing forms. We can, we can get to that in a moment, but I just want to kind of double back <clears throat> and talk for a moment about the sort of structure of the curriculum and the, the academic sequence that would typically be followed at a Gelugpa monastery, um, you know, let's say in 1700, somewhere in, in central Tibet, uh, at one of the large monasteries. And th this would be, um, above all, uh, to focus on five great Indian texts, uh, which uh, I, I don't necessarily have to give the names of these, but they, they cover the fields of logic and epistemology, of the path to enlightenment that's based on the perfection of wisdom sutras, uh, Madhyamaka philosophy, the philosophy focused on emptiness, uh, the kind of phenomenology of the mind and the nature of the cosmos as laid out in the Abhidharma systems of earlier Buddhism, and uh, a famous text on monastic practice called the Vinaya Sutra. And in addition to these, then, monks would, would typically study other uh, uh, texts that are, that are not, they're not just uh, auxiliary, they're quite basic themselves, but they don't form part of the core curriculum. These include Nagarjuna's famous text, The Stanzas of the Middle Way, which is a detailed uh, philosophical exposition of emptiness, the uh, engaging in the Bodhisattva's way of life or the way of the Bodhisattva, the Bodhicharyavatara of Shantideva, which lays out in beautiful poetry um, and in, in a somewhat systematic manner, the path that someone, that a, an aspiring Buddha, a Bodhisattva should follow. And then a, a text called the Uttara Tantra or the Sublime Continuum, which uh, talks about Buddha nature, our innate capacity for becoming fully awakened. Anyway, these are the sorts of texts that were studied, and one would do so primarily through the medium of debate. Uh, this was true in India, but it became especially true in Tibet, and, 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 and particularly so within the Gelug tradition, which is famous for the, the, uh, the, this kind of sophistication and skill of its debate tradition. Um, and the study of these texts was done through debate, and, and it also was based not, it was based certainly on the original text, but more often uh, there would actually be uh, kind of distillations of these texts, we, we might call them trots in a way, uh, that were written over the centuries that made these very, very complex topics uh, manageable. They organized them clearly and, and in a sequence that allowed for uh, the most profitable possible study of them. So this is, and you know, at the, at the end of say 20 years, uh, one would attain what now is, a, is called the Geshe degree, uh, which was the, the highest academic achievement. Um, and within Geshe's then, there are also kind of various gradations, the highest level, that of Larampa, 
is is the one that uh, is is the sort of acme of the Gaelic scholastic uh, achievement. And both Geshe Zopa, my teacher, and Yangtze Rinpoche are Laurampa Geshe, so they are among the the greatest products of this system. It ought to be noted just as a in passing, as as a side note, that. Um, these were large monasteries, thousands and thousands of monks in them. Drepung may have had as many as ten to 15,000 monks at its peak in Tibet. And it, it ought to be said that the number of monks who were actually following this kind of rigorous scholastic curriculum was very small. Uh, monasteries were in, in many ways the central institutions in Tibet for the last, well, until 1959 for the previous thousand years. And so there were many, many other social and political and economic functions that monasteries carried out. But, but certainly education was one of them. And uh, um, it was a tradition that uh, was maintained with remarkable fidelity and has been translated even since the kind of rupture in Tibetan history in 1959. It's been maintained with uh, remarkable success in, uh, in the diaspora. Um, in fact, it's, I think it can be <clears throat> safely argued that uh, you know, traditional Tibetan Buddhist education is flourishing far more outside Tibet than it is inside Tibet. Though it's not, it has not been wiped out there, but it's strictly controlled and it's uh, uh, really a shadow of what it used to be. So, Roger, you spoke about some structures that had sort of taken form in Indian and Tibetan Buddhism that were then reproduced in the West. Could you speak a little, little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, what what I'm thinking of primarily, I guess, is, is a focus on the study of these texts. Um, I mean, we have to understand that when we talk about the study of something like Tibetan Buddhism in the West, there are a number of different institutional settings for this, right? I, I, in Madison, I was in two different settings like that. I was at the University of Wisconsin, which was a very traditional academic program. It happened that there was a teacher in that program, Geshe Zopa, who was a Geshe and a, and a Tibetan. In fact, the, the first tenured uh, Tibetan professor in, in the West, so far as I know. Uh, in any case, you know, at, at the University of Wisconsin, it was a very uh, strict um, and and academic approach to the study of Buddhism. Um, there was no uh, there was no effort made. In fact, it was strongly discouraged that one express one's own religious opinions. Um, we were there to objective quote objectively study the the subject matter, the texts, the historical analyses, and so forth. But at the same time, of course, there were places began to spring up, and you know, Deer Park was just one of them. There have been a number that have sprung up in other, that sprang up in the U.S. and and elsewhere in the West around the same time, where there certainly is study of the texts, um, and in a, in a much more traditional fashion, um, and it's it's all set within an explicitly I would call it religious context, a ritual context, a religious context, and so. You know, I would go from classes at the University of Wisconsin where, you know, Geshe Zopa would teach in a somewhat traditional manner, but he had to give exams and grade exams and do things like that. But also I was studying with other people who were, 
you know, very hard-nosed academics about the tradition, and I learned a tremendous amount from them. Um, and you know had to had to learn that that sort of way of talking and thinking about the tradition. Whereas at Deer Park, Eshizopa every Sunday would give a discourse from the Lamrim Chenmo, Tsongkhapa's great text on the stages of the path to enlightenment. And uh, this was not set up as an academic study. Um, of course, you were supposed to investigate, think about it, ask questions that occurred to you. But it was a a very different kind of setting. Um, and so, you know, these great texts, whether we're talking about Tibetan texts or the Indian classics that preceded them, um, are, are studied a great deal these days, in, certainly in Western Buddhist centers, uh, particularly Western Buddhist centers that are academically inclined. Um, and, of course, these texts continue to be studied by scholars in the various uh, universities in which there are Buddhist studies programs. And what, what strikes me, and this brings us to the point of, one of the points about Maitripa, is that Maitripa is a kind of hybrid of these two uh, in, a, in a very interesting and I think, if not unique way, in a, in a, in a, um, a, you know, a, a way that has a tremendous amount of uh, potential to it. Um, there, Maitripa is a, you know, is definitely an academic institution, and it adheres to academic standards. It requires of its students the, the kinds of things that they have come to expect in their, say, work in undergraduate years, or or even in some cases if they've done graduate degrees somewhere. But at the same time, there is a very explicit. Um, mission, if you will, a part of part of Maitripa's mission is to integrate those scholastic studies with um, a, a serious uh, attempt to learn meditation, which is after all a, a basic Buddhist practice, and to learn it well and thoroughly and to progress in it. This is not the kind of thing you would get in, a, in an academic grad school program. Um, and at the same time, as a kind of third uh, uh, leg of the stool, as it were, is is a very strongly ingrained sense of service to the community, not just within the Maitripa community, but the broader community in Portland and and uh, ultimately beyond that. So, so you know, there are ways in which you might argue that a place like Maitripa, anyway, uh, is a an a little, it's parallel in certain ways to a theological school um, th that you might find in a Christian tradition or a Jewish tradition or perhaps a, a an Islamic madrasa. But but it, it doesn't it doesn't quite work as as an exact parallel either, uh, because the the academic inquiry at Maitripa is is very serious and it can be quite fierce, um, and it's and it's not. It's, it certainly always intends to be respectful, but tradition is questioned, and it's questioned not just from within tradition, but from the standpoint of the academic study of religion, the academic study of Buddhism, and so forth. And yet, at the same time, certainly there are probably the majority, I would say the vast majority of students at Maitripa are, to one degree or another, committed Buddhists. Uh, not always within the Gelug tradition, not always even within the, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but nevertheless, they, they have been, I think they've been drawn to Maitripa pre precisely by 
uh, this, this uh, kind of mix of rigorous academic analysis and questioning and um, the, the focus on meditation and, if you will, the heart element of uh, connection to others and the, the provision of, uh, of social service uh, in one form or another. Great. Thank you so much, Roger. So to close, I'd like to hear your perspective on why someone would get a degree in Buddhist studies at a place like Maitripa and what might they do with it in future? Yeah. I mean, I think there are many possibilities. Um, Maitripa offers both a, a, uh, an MDiv, a Master of Divinity, and, and a, a Buddhist studies MA. Um, and I I've, of course, taught students there over the years who are enrolled in both programs. I think for me, as probably as someone who, who comes above all from the academic angle on these kinds of matters, um, the, the opportunity of a, of a master's at a place like Maitripa is, is the opportunity to really dig yourself fairly deeply into a tradition. Um, a tradition of thought, a tradition of practice, uh, both ritual and in terms of service to community, uh, you know, that has, has been around for a very long time. It's, it's stood the test of time. In Tibet, certainly, it survived and even thrived in the diaspora in India and Nepal and other parts of Asia. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's found a foothold, at least in the West. There are plenty of challenges, needless to say. But the ability to uh, to study this tradition in some depth, and I, I and I, I, I cannot omit to mention that the study of Tibetan language is, which is a, a central part. It's not the only part, but it's an important part of this program. is is a vital one. I've always maintained that the the if you really want to understand a religious tradition or just any culture to learn the languages or the language or languages that are relevant to that is vital and my has got absolutely outstanding instruction in tibetan language particularly the the tibetan uh, classical language in which the the texts are written and these these texts it should be noted are not just Tibetan compositions, but all this vast library of Indian texts that were translated into Tibetan between the basically the eighth and the thirteenth uh, or fourteenth centuries. So uh, you have you have access to this, and uh, you know it, it. People who come out of the program, I think, have have been able to do um, a wide variety of things. Some of them have become meditation instructors or even spiritual community leaders. Uh, many of them have, have gotten involved in nonprofit organizations of one sort or the other. And some have gone on to PhDs uh, in areas like psychology, religious studies, education, and Buddhist studies. I mean, that would be, uh, that would seem to be the most logical track. There, as with the Geshe program in Tibet, there are only a few who, who, who take it all the way through. But there, there have been and continue to be students with MAs in Buddhist studies from Maitripa who have gone on to some of the great uh, grad programs in Buddhist studies in the U.S. Uh, I, I know uh, at least one who's uh, getting close to finishing up at the University of California, Santa Barbara, and there, there have been some others as well. So there's, there's a lot of opportunities with it. It, uh, um, you know, it, it gives you you know, it gives you depth in this extraordinary 
philosophical and religious tradition, but it also, in the process of doing that, and this is one of the great things about Maitripa, is it opens you out in other directions as well. It's not just um, this, this intellectual enterprise. It's, uh, it's, it's meditative and contemplative, and of course, meditation and contemplation are increasingly taken seriously within more standard academic institutions, just as the ideal of service is taken so much more seriously by universities and colleges now than it was, say, when I was an undergrad or a grad student. Um, so in that way, uh, Maitripa is, is very much in line with, but maybe ahead of the curve on many developments that we see in uh, higher education uh, in the U.S. certainly and maybe in the West more broadly. Anyway, it's a degree you, you can do a lot of different things with and, and people have done a lot of different things with. I think that's typical for master's programs, honestly. Um, uh, a master's is a way of, you know, getting your getting your feet, uh, more than just your feet, you know, getting yourself somewhat immersed in a you know, a profound uh, uh, and demanding tradition of study and practice. Uh, but, you know, it, it still, it's, it's only going to be a matter of a couple, three, four years, however long you take. And uh, so, uh, you know, what, what happens after that is, is up to you, but what happens after that will in many ways be profoundly shaped by the experience you have at Maitripa or similar places. Thank you so much for your time, Roger. It's been a pleasure to speak with you. Thank, Thank you. you. Next, we will hear from Yangtze Rinpoche, Maitriba College founder, president, and faculty about these same points, the traditional roots of Buddhist education in India and Tibet, and how it is developing in the modern Western world, and specifically at Maitriba College, focusing especially on the unique intersection of East and West and Rinpoche's vision for Maitripa College education. So I'm very happy to welcome Yangtze Rinpoche, president of Maitripa College, to speak with us about Buddhist education. Rinpoche, welcome to the Maitripa College podcast, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you, most welcome. <clears throat> Let's start by asking you to please tell me something about yourself and your experience and connection with our subject matter, Buddhist education. Well, <clears throat> since my early age and my education is just totally in a Buddhist environment, Buddhist master, Buddhist uh, monastery, and uh, not only that, and uh, the, the system of education also, like a very ancient style, like lots of memorizations, lots of recitations, and uh, interactive, like debating, and so on and so forth. So it is a very proactive kind of education system that I'm grown up. And can you talk about where you studied in India? Well, first I was a study in Kopan Monastery in mid-1970s and late 70s. And then after that I went to South India with a Sera Monastery. Uh, and uh, you know, both monasteries have a very similar 
education system. They follow the ancient curriculum. And uh, in Copan, there's a little bit ancient curriculum plus adapting modern. Now we have to do a study of science and English and so on and so forth. But in Sarah, it's just a pure philosophy and Buddhist study. So can you talk a little, a little bit, Rimche, about what it means to have a kind of pure traditional curriculum? So over here, pure traditional curriculum is basically we follow the, the curriculum like 300 years old in Sarah. And some of them also follow in Copan. So, you know, fundamentally, uh, it kept very strong uh, the lineage, the purity of the lineage, the study uh, structure, and then also, um, you know, fundamentally, uh, the purpose of study is to not to get job, but purpose of study is basically it is for individual liberation or liberation for all sentient beings. So that's kind of like a, in one way, maybe today's education maybe won't talk so much about the enlightenment of yourself or enlightenment of a sentient being. So that's that's the ancient pure curriculum, you know, Buddhist study curriculum is basically the learning outcome is fundamentally focused into a, uh, liberating from all the uh, limitation of our afflictions and total infinite growth of our wisdom and compassion. So can you describe for us a little bit about what your day would be like when you were studying in a monastery? Yeah, morning, like uh, we need to get up like maybe 4.30 and we have a, like a prayer assembly. And those will be like sometimes it'll be two hours, sometimes it'll be an hour and a half. And after that, then we have a, some kind of debating session. Uh, it's go up to kind of like 11 or 11.30 and then we have a lunch break. Then after lunch break, then we have a, some class with uh, individual teachers and masters, the specific topics. So there will be like group of students. Uh, some of them like maybe 10 or some of them be like four and some will be like, you know, 20 or 30. So different subject in different student groups will have a class with the teacher. And uh, then we have uh, afternoon, we have a little bit more kind of uh, doing our own research late afternoon, to kind of study and so on and so forth. Then we'll have a dinner at the around like 5 or 5.30 and then after dinner and again we have like a debating session which goes to until like from 6 to until 9 or 9.30 and then after that we have to have uh, like for example in my case I have to go back and do a recitation of whatever subject that I have memorized and going through for maybe for hour or hour and a half and then go to bed but sometime my teacher would say, okay, we need to do some oral transmission, whatever the subject that I'm going to memorize tomorrow, next morning. So he would give me kind of oral transmission uh, before night, uh, before I go to sleep. That's the really difficult part for me. I'm very sleepy and still have to get the transmission for tomorrow's memorizations. So if you think about 
the way we study in the West, we study these texts, and you think about the way that they study in India and Tibet. Can you explain to a Western audience what debate is about? Is it kind of like a discussion group? or? Well, the <clears throat> first of all, in, the, in the, the debating system that in Tibetan monastery, it just comes through, language comes from Nalanta, from India. Uh, basically, system of logic, you know, the uh, structure of the logic is followed very strictly from the uh, Dharmakirti in Indian scholars from Nalanda tradition. And uh, however, from something Tibetan masters, they're trying to, they been very creativity to some way to creating very simple language. It's only like four or five, but very precise. And uh, they're trying to put the the, the 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 logic format into this kind of like a program that Tibetan masters created, simple language. There's only four or five um, terminologies and simple and clear, I think, complex of the logic system putting into the simplicity of a language and the precise. And I think that give us for the debating system have a really uh, sharp, precise, quick, so it have those qualities, clarity, and so on and so forth. So, now, in the West debating, maybe you're trying to explain and go on and trying to go long explanations, but in these debating systems, you follow through the system, so it is a very, uh, you have to be walked very fine line and uh, trying to be very alert. And, uh, you know, fundamentally, it is a kind of like a learning method, you know, individual really kind of your, your brain or your mind is so alert and active and engaging, you're verbally expressing, it's kind of very passionate way. And then physically, there's some kind of like a hand gesture, your hand gesture, your leg movement. So it's all integrated way. The learning method is not, you know, kind of like a, it's like a whole, your existence is applied to, to, to some way to sharpening your understanding and way of a, in a, kind of like a very rapidly kind of trying to, uh, creating neural path. I don't know, it's today's language maybe. It's very, I think it's a very proactive system of, uh, basically, Western debating is there really good, sharp, but it is kind of long explanations and kind of the, it's not kind of, I feel like not too direct, uh, kind of not too direct kind of interactiveness. And this system in Tibet where they built, there's no way you to get out, not the facing the question directly and trying to respond the, um, answer directly cannot you know it's people try to avoid but there's a very limited space because of the system of the debating system that tibetan they're able to create it creates like you have to face you cannot try to avoid i think western debating system there's a lot of space to avoid because you're debating but there's not exactly good language format to keeping on the track and Umiche, can you talk a little bit about how long your 
program of study was in India and the different texts that you studied? Well, majority uh, the study was in uh, we call five five major texts. Uh, there's a uh, um, and uh, I think I studied. I, I already studied a little bit kind of philosophical system understanding in Copan in late seventies. Uh, but then I think I was interested in in study in just kind of like in 1979 in, in, in uh, South India. Then I finished entire my program 1995. So now can you tell me a little bit about how Buddhist education came to the West that you're aware of? Well, I'm, I think <clears throat> in 1959, Tibet, and, uh, Tibet was uh, occupied by Communist Party and there's lots of monsters exiled, 60s. And then I think in the West during that time, there's a lot of kind of unrest. So there's a lot of young people trying to seeking different path. And so combination, Tibetans kind of like masters coming out from Tibet and Westerners trying to kind of rebel and seeking different spiritual path and going into the East combination. I think is a lot of Western hippies trying met lots of Dharma, not different religion, Eastern religion, Eastern philosophy. So this whole thing is the Westerners, they came through based on their passion, not based on something that they can apply into their career or what they can do. It's just like a genuine heart. So because of that combination of Westerners, their genuine heart quest and the situation what happened for in Tibet and exiling lots of masters. So I think Lama Yeshe, Lama Zopa Rinpoche, and not only that, there's a great master in all traditions, Zen tradition and Theravada tradition. So through this kind of like a combination, I think then Tibetan Buddhism kind of slowly, uh, uh, you know, kind of taking a route into West. Um, and then, of course, uh, lots of ancient teachers are, are really not only intellectually very sharp, but they are very, very genuinely kind and uh, sincerely practicing the, what they preach. So all these teachers' strength, and the Westerners, the genuine, heartful quest combination, I think, Dharma able to continue. Okay. So you said earlier that the main learning objective for the education in Sarah was enlightenment. Do you think that's a realistic learning objective for Western Buddhist education? I mean, in in the West, unfortunately, it brainwashed. You know, education is to condition to get job. Uh, education becomes making so much conditional. So that's kind of like a uh, so need to kind of any time when you say education comes some way, what I can do with this one and what I can do this with this life and now and so that's kind of generally generous, but some individual may have a different, definitely. Mm, 
but uh, now I think, generally speaking, you know, if we say enlightenment or liberation, uh, I think it is uh, to 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 take this kind of like a course learning outcome as an enlightenment and liberation may 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 take a time to push into that kind of thought, but. I think uh, you know today's understandings of uh, nature of reality by even physics, and they are pushing the boundary very far. The potential of the mind, the nature of the mind, and uh, really, it is a uh, something. I think today's scientists really value very very strong. So. I think it's just a different way of introducing the enlightenment. Only I think it's the condition here. But the potential of the mind, I think even the Western science, I think they see is really, really powerful and infinite. So uh, I think there's a, I think there's a hope, learning outcome as a something not to just to get job but something that evolve our mind yeah. because now understanding of you know after understanding of the neuroscience and now through this the consciousness and uh, you know all this infinite understanding based on the research for certain extent i think future maybe Enlightenment as a course learning outcome is a possibility, I think, for the Western education field. In some specific, maybe you have to choose in that field. Okay. So, for the last question, I'd just like you to speak a little bit about why someone would get a degree in Buddhist studies at a place like Maitripa College, and what might they do with it? Well, I think right now in 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 America there's uh, already well established by Tonga Rinpoche and Narupa uh, University, and I think really really a source of inspiration. And the Mitipa College here, uh, you know, fundamentally we're trying to strengthen the intellectual, the philosophy, and we want to get that really well established. And based on that, we're also trying to put. Uh, Students who require to meditation, and they also be trying to strengthen that element, and uh, then also the service. So basically, these three key structure where the education was a kind of a design. So uh, maybe suitable for somebody, maybe not suitable for, not necessarily be suitable for everybody. So. You know, if people like this, that kind of like a flavor, scholarship, meditation, and service, and then yeah, we're trying to really kind of focus into these three areas. And uh, and lots of our alumni students were already working into uh, spiritual caregiving, into uh, in different medical institutions. So I think uh, there's some results. <coughs> And some of our students are doing also doing, you know, guiding, teachings, meditations into the different centers. Uh, so, so there's, I think, uh, 
some result is there. So, yeah, I think if people who likes that kind of flavor, yeah, most welcome. Okay, so Rinpoche, is there anything that you'd like to say to anybody considering an application to Maitripa College at this point? So anybody who really likes to, you know, I think uh, we have a uh, very, how you say, it's not large class, it is a very intimate small class and we're working very directly. So uh, the environment is very good, I think. And uh, yeah, I think uh, and uh, we, the, the, the faculty and staff, we do our best to uh, assist uh, your spiritual journey. And uh, we're very open. So these are the that you're trying to do. Okay. Thank you very much for your time, Rinpoche. Okay, most welcome. Okay. Thank you for listening to the Maitripa College podcast. This podcast was produced by Alfredo Pinheiro, Tiffany Blumenthal, Andrew Hughes, Kate McDonald, and me, your host, Namdral Miranda Adams. 